0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 142, An Inauspicious Start. first I want to thank our well, donators, and they're not new, but uh, Jan Heinrichs and Anna Gantcheva. thank you both so much for your generous donations this past month. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we saw the Constituent Assembly debate and finally approve Bulgaria's constitution as the factions within it morphed into conservative and liberal groups. Meanwhile, Alexander Battenberg was nominated as Bulgaria's prince but his qualifications are a bit in doubt from those who really know him. Now let's begin by running through that constitution one more time because, well, it's going to be a little bit important. So, it gave Bulgaria a unicameral parliament, so just one house. This would mean that passing legislation would be easier because there's no upper house whose approval is necessary. Voting was available to literate men over 21 years old, and each member of the assembly is supposed to represent roughly 10,000 adults. This national assembly also had the ability to introduce legislation and control the budget, but it also had sole control over taxation. So, whereas kind of legislation and the budget, those responsibilities are somewhat shared with the prince, they both have some kind of uh, influence there, taxation is just the National Assembly. The key element to the constitution early on was indeed the prince's role in governing. When the assembly was not in session, the prince could issue decrees alone, although the assembly would then need to approve them once it reconvened. Remember, parliaments of this era tended to meet for a fairly limited amount of time, uh, much less than most of them do today. And so someone had to kind of govern the country in the meantime, and they gave that control to the prince. However... The power of the prince went beyond simply being able to kind of govern when the assembly was not in session because the prince was the one who decided when to convene the assembly, and he was only obliged to do so for a minimum of two months per year, beginning on October the 15th. So that's the latest he would have to convene the assembly. And importantly, he could also choose when to dissolve the assembly once it had been in session at least two months. So essentially, the prince could in theory rule basically as he pleased from around December to October 15th, and then he could simply delay the assembly meeting by up to two months if he really, really wanted to. So he had a lot of control about when the assembly would be in session. So if the prince was deciding when to convene and when to dissolve the assembly, well, it seemed he was the one pretty much in the driver's seat. In addition, he appointed all of the ministers, although the people he appointed did have to be members of the assembly. Now, those ministers were responsible to serve both the assembly and the prince, which, you know, if the two were in disagreement, would be pretty awkward. You know, who who did they serve? The, the person whose cabinet they were in or the place in which they were a member of the assembly? And... In general, whenever I mentioned, you know, they both, the prince and the assembly both had some responsibility for passing legislation. Well, when a law was passed by the assembly, it required both the signature of the prince and of the relevant minister in the prince's cabinet. So, you know, there's no upper house to kind of block legislation, but the prince and cabinet ministers both basically can. Now, the prince can form cabinets basically at his pleasure. And, well... He in general is supposed to represent a, to kind of form a cabinet representing the largest party in the assembly, but in the initial kind of parliament or the initial assembly, sometimes I'll call it a parliament. It's just easier, but it's technically an assembly. You know, that initial assembly is not the product of an election. You know, we, we talked about its composition. It was kind of like a, a temporary appointed assembly just to get the ball rolling. And for this assembly, the prince does not have to choose the largest party because it's It's a bit ambiguous in the Constitution, so he kind of interprets it that way. And this is really where we get to the issue of lack of clarity and a real lack of checks and balances. There was no provision for basically what would happen if there was a disagreement between the prince and the assembly. The Constitution just kind of relied on the relevant parties coming to an agreement. And as in many European monarchies of the time, the prince was authorized to also be the head of the army and conduct foreign policy. But, you know, looking at the way this legis- this, this constitution rather is kind of set up, you can easily see, you know, every time the, they reach an impasse where the le- the legislature, the assembly passes a law that the prince doesn't like, the prince can just dissolve them and trigger new elections and, you know, kind of form, have some leeway in terms of kind of forming cabinets. And you could imagine this progressively annoying the assembly and it kind of further refusing to work with the prince and you just, you can see everything getting to an impasse pretty easily. Uh, now we'll have to see how this all plays out, but well, maybe you haven't noticed. I also have some degrees in political science. That's my besides history. That's my other specialization. And there's a lot of red flags in this constitution. Now, besides all that politics, the constitution also had provisions related to kind of more everyday life things. For example, All Bulgarian children were required to attend school for at least five years. All men were required to provide at least two years of military service. And it protected freedom of the press as well as the right to assembly. So there were some kind of civil rights in there. Ivan Ilchev summarized the Constitution pretty well, I thought, writing that it was, quote, done in haste, with minimal preparation, the product of enthusiasm rather than carefully thought out decisions. The work of the Constituent Assembly nevertheless remains one of the most lasting in modern Bulgarian history, end quote. And like I said, I think that really captures it, that the Chernobyl Constitution was deeply flawed and a bit rushed, but nonetheless was tremendously important. But the exact role it's going to play in the next you know, few years and decades of Bulgarian history, we will have to see. But for now, the prince, Battenberg, had yet to arrive in Bulgaria. He was at this moment touring European capitals to kind of rally support for Bulgaria as a new country and himself as a new monarch. And the first elections had yet to be held. So things are still in a very provisional state. Now, on his tour, Battenberg learned a few key things. First, while visiting the Russian Tsar, he learned that Russia viewed him as a German puppet, and despite his personal connections to the Tsar, he was his nephew, there wasn't a lot of support there. Russia believed a strong prince in Bulgaria was actually against its interests. So, well, he was hoping to get support there. It didn't look likely, and Russia was basically very skeptical of Battenberg. However, you might think that that means when he visited Berlin, he might get a nice reception. After all, he was ostensibly a German puppet. Uh, alas, this was not the case. The Germans basically didn't care a lick about Bulgaria, and basically Otto von Bismarck advised uh, Battenberg to t- kind of stick to the Treaty of Berlin, don't upset Russia. Basically, just follow the treaty we signed and uh, don't upset the apple cart. Just, just leave everything be, leave us alone, don't, don't cause problems. Now, in Vienna, he was advised to unite Bulgaria with Eastern Rumelia as soon as possible, which, of course, directly contradicted the advice he just got from Berlin not to violate the Treaty of Berlin. Um, So already it's like the Russians think he's a German puppet. The Germans don't care about him. The Germans don't want him to upset the apple cart, neither do the Russians. But then the Austro-Hungarians want him to upset the apple cart. He's getting all kinds of mixed messages, needless to say. Now, in London, Queen Victoria actually welcomed him at Balmoral Castle, which, if you've seen the TV show The Crown, you'll know that was kind of a big deal. That didn't happen a lot. And basically, Victoria really liked him and vowed to support him. Although, you know, Great Britain wasn't exactly an absolute monarchy at this time, so what that means in practice uh, will remain to be seen. It's unclear whether Queen Victoria's support will translate to the support of whoever is the prime minister at the time. Now, Battenberg's last stop before Bulgaria was, no surprise, Constantinople, to be formally appointed to his role by the sultan because Bulgaria was still technically under the Ottomans. The sultan, for his part, basically gave him the cold shoulder and told him to mind his place. So the only warm reception Battenberg got anywhere was in London, and whether that warm reception in London would translate to absolutely anything in practice was unclear. So it's a bit ironic, right, because... Battenberg seemed to be very well connected in terms of family ties, right? Uh, He's ethnically German. He was born in Italy. His father was an Austrian general. Uh, He's, you know, related to the Russian royal family. He's the nephew of the Tsar. Um, All kinds of connections, left, right, and center. But all that really translates to very little. So, from the beginning, Prince Battenberg faced an incredibly difficult geopolitical situation. Russia expected him to be their puppet and to respond to every command to jump with the response, how high? Germany was indifferent. Austria-Hungary was leery that Bulgarian ambitions might disrupt its own plans and yet for some reason wanted unification. Those seemed contradictory. Britain was vaguely supportive, but also deeply suspicious of Russia and therefore deeply suspicious of Bulgaria as a prospective Russian puppet. How on earth? The young prince was going to reconcile all these competing aims? Uh, as well as his own personal aims, as well as the aims of Bulgaria's emerging political parties, that's anyone's guess. But in the meantime, other things were happening. May of 1879 saw the first workers' union formed in Bulgaria when print shop workers in Sofia organized. The month also saw the graduation of the first class of the Sofia Military Academy. And around this time, the first Ottoman administrator of eastern Rumelia arrived in Plovdiv. He was Alexander Bogoridi. He was of Bulgarian origin, but he had been born in Constantinople. Now, his name might sound a bit familiar because he was the son of Stefan Bogoridi, who, if you'll remember, was a prominent Ottoman politician who had helped build the first Bulgarian church in Constantinople, who had served in the Ottoman fleet, who had helped fight Napoleon in Egypt, and had been an administrator in Moldova. In fact, one of his other sons would go on to become a prominent politician there. But Alexander had studied law in Germany and served the Ottomans in many European capitals, so he was kind of an ideal candidate to run Eastern Romalia, because he had his Bulgarian roots and his family had ingratiated themselves to the Bulgarian people by trying to serve them while serving the Ottomans, but he also had a long history of Ottoman service, so he was quite acceptable to everyone involved. And politically speaking, he was generally sympathetic to the liberal faction developing in Sofia and its equivalent in eastern Rumelia. Now, interestingly, May also saw the Ottoman government choose to pardon those who had fought against it both in the Russo-Turkish War and in the more recent Kresna-Roslog uprising. Although the uprising had been brutally put down, These actions showed that the Ottomans realized they were not in a strong position and that it was in their interest to bring calm as soon as possible instead of continuing to pursue their enemies, particularly considering how many of those enemies were now participating in the governing of Bulgaria as an Ottoman vassal state. So, you know, basically, the Ottomans had to go after a bunch of people who are now Bulgarian politicians. That would be awkward. The Ottomans also soon appointed a committee to oversee reforms in their remaining European territories as required under the Treaty of Berlin. So, in theory, places like Macedonia should see, soon be seeing some kinds of reforms, but we'll see how that plays out in practice. Now, as the summer of 1879 began, more and more institutions in Sofia were getting up and running, including the Bulgarian National Bank and a new high court. Tondukov, completed the process of securing Bulgaria's new borders by using Russian forces to take the towns of Trun and Tsaribrod, which is now called Dimitrovgrad, and basically those formed the Serbian border. So Serbian forces had been occupying them since the end of the Russo-Turkish war, but the great powers had allowed Bulgaria to retain them even after dismantling San Stefano, so this was the time when those territories were formally given back to Bulgaria, although for the record, Serbia definitely still wants them back. Now, As Bulgaria's first elections were going to be held in the fall, the conservatives and the liberals were both busy preparing. Within a few weeks, both parties began publishing their own newspapers. Remember, this is a fairly common practice for 19th century political parties. If you go to a place like the United States, every political party had its newspaper that really directly sort of represented that party, which we don't tend to have much today. So it's important to keep in mind that was a much more open and direct relationship. Now, the conservatives began printing a newspaper called Vitusha, and the liberals responded with a paper whose name translates to All of Bulgaria. Now, as June turned into July, Prince Alexander had completed his tour of European capitals and finally set foot in Bulgaria for the first time, well, as its prince. He had been there during the war, uh, arriving by ship in Varna. Misha Glenny describes what happened next, writing, quote, From here, Alexander's journey to the new capital, Sofia, was like a triumphal return of a war hero. Flowers were strewn at his feet. Peasants traveled from all over Bulgaria and eastern Rumelia to prostrate themselves. As he approached the outskirts of the capital, a huge banner came into view. Forward, prince! The people are with you! He moved down one of Sofia's crooked, mud-soaked streets, where a group of schoolchildren sang the national anthem in their incomprehensible language. He passed another huge banner. Welcome, Prince. We have been expecting you for 500 years. End quote. In a village outside of Turnival, an old woman told him quote, There is not one here who does not weep for a father, son, or brother slain, or for a sister or daughter lost. But now you have come, we will dry our eyes and weep no more, for you bring us liberty and peace. End quote. So, Battenberg was getting quite a welcome, but, well, this is just the welcome. This is the first step, and we'll have to see how he does from here on out. But it's clear that the Bulgarian people realized what a moment this was, how important this transition in their country's history was. This was not lost on anyone, and their actions show that. And as a quick note, once Battenberg actually arrived in Sofia, this also meant it was time for Prince Dondukov to go back home to Russia because, well, he'd completed his mission. He had run Bulgaria until a Prince could be found. And so that was that. So at this point we say goodbye to Dundukov. Two days after his arrival in Bulgaria, the Prince swore his oath as monarch in front of the national assembly in Turnovo and began his reign as Knyaz of Bulgaria. Remember he was not Tsar. So he was just Knyaz, which you translate roughly as Prince, uh, Maybe it's. I think at some point we'll go into more detail about the distinction. You might remember from way, way, way back in the first like three seasons, but uh, it's it's a lower rank, and so you know, Bulgaria, the Bulgarian state at this point is sometimes referred to as the princedom of Bulgaria. Now, it had been 457 or 483 years since Bulgaria had a monarch, basically depending on whether you count Tsar Constantine II. Misha Glenny goes on to point out the obvious issue that. Well, it was great that Bulgaria had a monarch again, but that monarch was aghast at the state of his capital city. Sofia was muddy. It was overcrowded. It was awkwardly positioned away from any major bodies of water or easy transportation links, despite being on several major trade routes. Sofia was a a small town. At this point, Uh, remember, you know, a few years earlier, it had barely over 20,000 residents, as I mentioned. Uh, Most of its structures were made of wood. Most of its streets were unpaved. And well, for someone like Battenberg, that left an impression. To make matters worse, worse, there was the matter of his accommodation. For now, he would reside in the old Ottoman Konak, which you may know now as the kind of former royal palace, now museum in the center of Sofia, though. The building there today has been substantially redone and expanded and things, so this was a smaller building, but still, you know, this was the Ottoman government building that had been the headquarters of the Vilayet of Rumelia, and it was the best choice for accommodation for the Tsar. But the building, despite being fairly new, remember it was completed kind of just before the April uprising, it was not in a great state. Um, The konak had a leaky roof, and in fact, after his arrival, the ceiling of the royal bedroom collapsed and the prince had to sleep under a scaffold for some time to ensure he would not be killed by falling debris or just, you know, catch pneumonia from being rained on. So, yeah, you can imagine how that must feel. I mean, if that happened to a hotel you were in, you'd probably be furious. But, you know, this is a guy showing up to spend the rest of his life as a monarch. So, ooh, tough, tough start. Now, just over a week after he was sworn in, the prince appointed Bulgaria's first government. Again, elections were still a few months away, so this is a government based on that initial temporary national assembly. Now, initially a coalition headed by the liberal Dragan Tsankov was attempted, but this failed as petty squabbles and pride led several political figures to refuse to work together. So the prince's initial notion to create a kind of conservative liberal unity government went nowhere, and the prince concluded that a government should be entirely from one party or the other. At this point, although the liberals were without a doubt the largest group in the National Assembly, as I've mentioned, the constitution was interpreted to allow Battenberg to appoint a government from whichever party he wished, because basically the constitution said he had to appoint someone from the party with the largest number of votes, but no one had gotten any votes here, so he could do as he liked. As a result, he appointed a conservative government because the conservatives were much more in favor of his own power. Remember, they wanted a strong prince and didn't think the Bulgarian people were really ready for governing themselves. This choice to appoint a conservative government went against the advice of many who wished for him to represent the popular will by appointing a liberal government, or again at very least attempting a coalition government, which he did, but you know, he, he tried once, didn't work out, and he moved on. So as a result of all this, kind of worryingly, Prince Alexander didn't make any attempt to build any real relationship with the Liberal Party, which again, were by far the majority in the parliament. So this was worrying. He was not just cozying up and choosing the conservatives, but almost exclusively dealing with them. As a result of all this, Bulgaria got its first ever prime minister, Todor Bormov. He was a 45-year-old teacher and journalist from a village near Gabrovo. For years, he had worked closely with Russia while advocating for Bulgarian independence via negotiation and not revolution, which, remember, was kind of a core bit of the Conservative Party before the war. Just before his appointment by uh, Prince Alexander, he had briefly been vice-governor of Plovdiv and then governor of Sofia. Within the government, he was also minister of the interior and minister of education, so he was wearing a lot of hats. (laughs) Of course, his first major task was to organize elections during which, to quote Ilchev, quote, he dismissed liberal officials in the hopes of undermining their influence in the constituencies, a deplorable practice that was to flourish over the subsequent decades, end quote. So right from the start, Bulgarian democracy was facing serious challenges from those in power, who weren't very interested in allowing the people to freely exercise their opinions. So, the conservatives were in power because they supported a stronger role for the prince. However, it was the liberals that were actually more pro-Russian, and in general, the Russians were quite skeptical of Battenberg, as I've mentioned. The conservatives largely represented the Chorboji and the church officials and lacked mass support needed to govern effectively. And it's also worth noting that the peasants who largely supported the liberals were also, as a result, a bit skeptical of their new prince, believing that the Russian Tsar was their true savior and not this new guy who just showed up. So, from the beginning, Prince Alexander believed the Turnival Constitution was tying his hands too much, and he wanted more power. But, to get it, he needed the support of the conservatives. However, doing so meant going against Russia and the popular will. Thus, right from the start, Battenberg was putting himself in a very difficult situation politically. To make matters worse, the two primary Russian officials operating in Sofia were themselves pursuing opposing goals. Yeah, that's right, you heard me right. One was the Minister of War, uh, who was basically had to be a Russian officer because the Russian army was building the Bulgarian army at the time. The Russian army generally supported the pro-Russian liberals, and so did Bulgaria's new Minister of War. So he was in a conservative government but supported the liberals. And his view was to, quote, Black, quote, the powers of the new prince must be restricted as far as possible, end quote. So, again, Battenberg now had a cabinet official who opposed him and the conservative party he was backing, and who he couldn't really dismiss because that would anger Russia. Then, there was the other Russian official, the other primary one, the Russian consul general, basically their ambassador, who decided to support the prince and therefore the conservatives. Now, again, this was all deeply confusing and messy uh, and... Well, it was a generally messy political movement, and it's something that we're going to frankly have to get used to in this podcast because, well, spoiler alert, uh, messy political situations are kind of going to be the norm for the remainder of this podcast. Even some revolutionaries like Stomboff were actually working in the conservative interim government just to make things even more complicated. Stamblev himself was working in the Ministry of Internal Affairs and actually basically spent his days writing satire about his boss until they found a stack of these in his desk and they fired him, and so Stamblev went home to Turnovo and started working as a lawyer where he gained some fame. But getting back to it, the complications caused by Russia early on did not stop with the contradictory policies of its two primary figures in Sofia. Russian agents were also sprinkled throughout the government, including the prince's own servants, who were spying on him on behalf of the Tsar. When he learned of this, Prince Alexander was furious, writing in a letter, quote, All the scum of Russia had taken refuge here and has tainted the whole country, and the man under whose protection all this gang has collected is the now departed Dondukov. Thanks to Dondukov's dispensations, the Russian system of bribery has actually been sanctioned, and every day I find myself faced with the painful necessity of either agreeing to the most imprudent demands or of being accused in St. Petersburg of treason and wounding the most sacred feelings of the Bulgars. End quote. As if his feelings weren't clear from that letter, he also later wrote simply quote, All my worst enemies are the Russians, and I have to be so desperately careful, end quote. As Karavelov had written in the newspaper Svoboda back in 1870, quote, if Russia comes to liberate, she will be met with great sympathy. If she comes to rule, she will find many enemies, end quote. So to many in Bulgaria, it already seemed that Russia was coming to rule and was fulfilling Karavelov's prediction. But exactly how this is going to play out, we'll have to see. So, Hopefully you've got some idea of what this political situation is. As I mentioned, it's a bit difficult to wrap your head around. But all of this confusion, remember, was compounded by the prince's political inexperience. As Black wrote, quote, received the impression that the Constitution, which was in fact backed by the Russian government as a whole, had been concocted as a plot against him personally by a few irresponsible panslavs. He did not realize that the elements in the constitution which he found most objectionable had been added to the Russian draft by the Bulgarian liberals, and that the Russians supported it only because it seemed to be their best chance of maintaining their influence. End quote. In other words, Battenberg is also dramatically misreading the political moment. He's blaming Russia for things that are not Russia's fault, and just generally is not good at kind of reading who wants what, what, who are the major political players, how can he build a coalition, build some support, and get things done. Instead, he is angry, he's frustrated, he wants sort of a free reign to do as he likes, and it's really pissing him off that he does not have it. Even at the event in which the first cabinet that Battenberg kind of created was announced, he was horrified to learn that according to the constitution, he was to be addressed as excellency and not what he considered the more appropriate highness. Now, this was somewhat indicative of the mountains made of molehills at this political moment. And well, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, a lot of people who knew Battenberg said that uh, he tended to focus a little bit too much on these little things and these kind of the trappings of power and not power itself the liberals even jumped on this issue and loudly proclaimed that calling the prince anything other than excellency violated the constitution which was true but really who cares so all that is to say within weeks of his arrival in bulgaria the prince and the conservative government he appointed had a, had sort of greatly upset the majority liberals and the russians prince alexander considered delaying the upcoming elections or even abandoning the constitution altogether but He was persuaded otherwise for the moment. Of course, there were other challenges Bulgaria was already facing. I mentioned the debt payments last time. Evidently, Battenberg neglected to pay them initially. But there was also extensive migration going on at this moment. Black points out that while many Bulgarians were now kind of returning from time spent abroad, particularly in Russia, those Bulgarians were returning as pro-Russian pan-Slavic activists although some of them had become acquainted with Russian socialist and nihilist circles and resented Tsarist oppression there, and those Bulgarians often came to see parallels between the oppression of the Tsar in Russia and that of the Ottoman Sultan. All that is to say, these returning Bulgarian emigres were further complicating the political scene. Then there was the issue of the Circassians, Muslim migrants from the Caucasus who, you'll recall, had settled into Bulgaria after fleeing Russian conquest. They had fought as irregulars on behalf of the Ottomans in the war and had committed many atrocities. Now, ten years after fleeing in the face of Russia and feeling quite unwelcome in Bulgaria, both for being Muslims and having fought for the Ottomans, many now began migrating again, this time to Anatolia. On top of all of this, in July, the government imposed something like martial law in the regions around Varna, Russe, and Turnovo to help combat brigands who were robbing people on the, on the roads, which, as we know, had happened before under the uh, you know strict Ottoman rule, but this was a big enough problem at this moment that the government felt it needed to impose martial law. And, as we'll see, brigandage, and even whole regions of Bulgaria being fully outside of Sofia's control, is going to be a problem for decades. So... As we wrap this episode up, Bulgaria's prince has arrived and begun to govern, and it is he's formed his official, first official government, but the political system and the political culture are already showing themselves to be in bad shape. Convoluted goals and aims, misunderstandings, and bad feelings are such that just when the new government in Sofia is facing such tremendous and daunting challenges like building a democracy, building a state, building an army, restoring order, and pursuing its foreign policy aims, the government seems woefully ill-equipped to succeed. But of course, nothing is guaranteed. There are still brilliant men and women determined to make this new country a success. Next time, we'll see Bulgaria host its first-ever elections as the new prince struggles to determine how he should govern in this strange foreign land. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And yeah, check out the uh, links down in the description to see more information about this episode, timeline, major characters, images, all that good stuff. And I'll see you in the next one.